I'm Steve Fisher. On Old Song Lyrics says, The stars belong to everyone. They gleam there for you and me. So tonight, when the sun is down and the sky is dark, look up and marvel at the thousands of stars. Wait a minute. I only count five. What happened to the galaxy? It's there, but if you live within 30 miles of a heavily populated area, chances are your view is hindered by light pollution. Vahe Perumian has been teaching physics and astronomy for over 25 years and is an avid photographer. He explains. 80% of the U.S. population can no longer see the Milky Way from where they live. And I think it's one third of the world population that can't. And it's getting worse. Vahe is an expert in astrotourism, and he's here to talk about it on Life Slices. We're going to start with a basic question that we usually ask everybody. Who is Vahe Perumian? That's a really good question. I'm presently a professor of physics and astronomy at USC. I'm a teaching professor, which means all I do is teach and design new courses, new and exciting courses for our students, whether it's in the physics and astronomy department or through our honors department, which is called thematic option. Previous to that, I carried out research in space science, working on geomagnetic storms, receiving funding from NASA and the National Science Foundation. I did that for over 20 years. My PhD is in physics. I actually, despite the fact that I'm at USC right now, I, I have three degrees from UCLA and actually did my research at UCLA That's not going to well. get you fired, is it? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. USC poached me from UCLA, so it's, 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 it's all their fault. But so, so that's, that's my, the professional side of who I am. In my personal life, my passions are astronomy, photography, and of course, spending time with my family. And, and so I try to involve them in, in astrotourism as, as often as I can, sharing with them meteor showers. My son and I are going to travel for the eclipses this year. And so I try to get them involved and as interested in astronomy as possible, despite the fact that each of my kids and my wife have very different interests than I do. Is it tough to get them away from the video games and TV shows to, to go out and look at the stars? Not as, not as, I, not as tough as I, as I thought it would be. My son loves, loves going on road trips and has gone backpacking with me. And so he's seen the night sky in the Sierra when we're at 10,000 feet. So that's, that's very inspiring. My wife and I, we, we travel often together. And whenever we do, we try to involve as much of my interests as hers, and whether that's just spending some time looking at the stars or visiting interesting locations. And then my two daughters, uh, varying interests, but still, uh, you will see them get interested in, 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 in the stars from I mean, once in a while. Not, a, not as much into roughing it. I, that I understand. What sparked your interest in astronomy and physics? Believe it or not, it's the, it was the Apollo 11 landing. Now, I'm, I was only four years old, but it was summer. And I wasn't living in the U.S. back then, so it was in the middle of the night. So when I went to summer school the next day, all the hype was, did you see the moon landing? And I went home and I said, what is this everyone's talking about? So they showed it to me. And then I got to meet the astronauts on the world tour that they did that year after they returned to Earth. And that just kicked it off from there to the Viking landings on Mars to just being very interested in astronomy, knowing that I probably wouldn't do that as a career, but it would be the one thing aside from my career that I would spend the most time on. I kind of demanded a telescope from my parents for the Halley's Comet 1986 flyby, and I had a telescope since then. So it's, it's just grown as my abilities to pursue being able to go places by myself or take my family and do what is now being called astrotourism <laughs> informally. 
This is an interesting thing to me, because before I read your article, when I heard the term astrotourism, I always heard it applied to those billionaires going up in Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk's rockets. What's your take on it? It's a different spin. Paying to go to space is, I guess you could consider it astrotourism or space tourism is, is, is how I usually refer to that. To me, astrotourism is traveling around the world to try to catch astronomical events that are not visible from where you are. So that would be my definition of it. Lunar eclipses, you can see from your location, and they're common enough that that you don't need to travel for them. Meteor showers, well, you have to be in a dark sky location to see it, so that that involves some travel. But I think for a very long time, astrotourism has been chasing eclipses, solar eclipses, because those are rare and they happen in very, very small slivers of the earth when they do. Now, explain the term for those who don't know, what what does dark sky mean? Everyone everyone assumes at night that the sky is dark anyway. Right. Right. That's absolutely right. By dark sky, I mean a sky where you can see hundreds, if not thousands of stars. And dark enough, perhaps, to even see the Milky Way with the naked eye. You're not going to resolve any features in it. You're not going to, it's not going to be anywhere close to the pictures you see, but at least be able to see the outline of the Milky Way. So there's actually a scale called the Bortle scale, which was developed for this. And it goes from one to nine, nine being, being in downtown LA with all the lights of the skyscrapers on and you can barely see anything and one being the absolute darkest sky you can find on earth so middle of the ocean somewhere or high up up on a mountain where there's no light pollution from any source including the moon so for example this weekend i went backpacking in the eastern sierra we went into king's canyon and while we were on the eastern side the sky was a lot darker than when we crossed the Sierra Crest because now lights from Fresno and other cities were impinging on our view. And you could see the Milky Way a lot better on the eastern side of the Sierra than you could on the western side. So light pollution, from even from cities that are 100 miles away, will ruin what you can see at night. You had an interesting statistic in your article, and we probably should mention the article. It was on the conversation where I saw it. I I do not have the the title in front of me. What was it? It was astrotourism. I had written it in earlier set of notes, but it's like, what did I get rid of that for? I can I can pull it up in a second because I don't remember the exact. I don't want to give you the wrong title for it. And of course, whenever you want to pull something up, it takes forever, right? It's as soon as this loads, right? Astrotourism, chasing eclipses, meteor showers, and elusive dark skies from Earth. Thank you for adding that. There was an interesting statistic. You said eighty percent of the world's population has trouble with, with seeing. St- stars at night. The one I quoted was 80% of the US population can no longer see the Milky Way from where they live. And I think it's one third of the world population that can't. And it's getting worse. It's getting worse. In LA, you used to be able to go to Joshua Tree National Park and it had pristine dark skies. But now LA has grown. Palm Springs has grown to the point where it's no longer. I take students there, but it's not as good as it was even five years ago. Which is very daunting, because I remember as a kid always being told to look up at the night sky. If you could see stars, it was going to be clear tomorrow. No rain. Now, it rarely seems clear. There's other... You you get light pollution, you get smog, you get the marine layer coming into LA sometimes, and a lot of atmospheric phenomena can get in the way of how good your seeing is. But the very, the first and foremost is light pollution. And in fact, for example, I take students to Mount Wilson Observatory. That's a historic observatory. That's how we found the universe was expanding. But Mount Wilson can't see 
within 30 degrees of the horizon because of LA's light pollution. We have to find stuff that's straight up or at high altitudes. Otherwise, it's no use. It, it doesn't see close to the horizon because there's so much light, light pollution. So, so that's number one as far as getting in the way of seeing the night sky. Can the average person, and we have telescopes in space like the James Webb mm -hmm. telescope, mm -hmm. can regular people, non-scientists, tap into that somehow and see what, that, what it's seeing? Certainly, most of the new missions that are being launched, the photographs that are taken are immediately downloadable. And so a lot of citizen scientists will download those photographs and work on them. For example, the Juno mission to Jupiter has a JunoCam camera that was kind of a last minute addition, but you can download JunoCam raw data and you can work on it yourself, bring out the contrasts and everything, mm. combine different channels and upload it. And if NASA likes it, they share it and it becomes part of their public domain. Uh, same thing, for example, the HOPE mission, which is a United Arab Emirates mission to Mars. All of their photographs are downloadable and you work on them. And there's a couple of really good artists that work on them and bring out the contrast. And for YouTube, for example, be able to see the Martian volcanoes from space. So a lot of that data is immediately available. Now, you can't, you can't point the telescope, the James Webb or the Hubble, wherever you want it. So you have to go with what it's been tasked to do. You can certainly write a proposal for time on those telescopes. And if your observation has merit, you don't have to be a prominent scientist. In fact, for the James Webb Telescope, they've implemented a double-blind system where they don't look at who's proposing. They look at the merits of the proposal, then, okay, we want this to happen. Oh, okay, this is who, who proposed. That's, that comes next. So I don't know if someone who's not affiliated with an institution can do that or not, but it's a lot easier now to get telescope time than it was before. I was looking up, trying to find where are the best places for astrotourism. I mean, you mentioned the middle of the ocean and the desert. Mm -hmm. What are some other practical locations for people to go to just if they don't have a lot of time and just want to do it at night, one night or a weekend or something? There's a website, lightpollutionmap.info. That gives you a map of the world and you can zoom in on where you live and try to find the darkest skies that you can find close to your home. If you want to see the Milky Way with a naked eye, I would say Bortle 3 is what you would go for. But if you just want to see a whole bunch of stars, if you want to see maybe a meteor shower, maybe even a Bortle 4 would work as well. You would still see the brightest meteors even in the middle of the city, but only the brightest. You might In a meteor shower, you might get one. But it, the darker the sky, the more meteors you're going to see during a meteor shower. So if your intent is to stargaze or watch a meteor shower, look for the darkest sky near your house, and it might be an hour drive. If you're on the East Coast, it's probably a several hours drive. If you're in the West Coast, it's probably at least two hours, depending on where you live. That, that's, that's what light pollution is doing. You might have to drive a couple of hours to find a really nice dark sky. So now you mentioned a few times the Bortle Index. How does one determine mm -hmm. the Bortle Index? I, it's, it's, I, I don't know the exact equation, but what they take into account is how much, how much light is being, how much light is present in terms of luminosity. And you can measure it, I guess, in, in uh, various units of how much light from various human sources is impinging on where you are. And that could be, for example, being reflected off of mountains. It could be air glow on the horizon. Again, when I was shooting the Milky Way this weekend, 
we had no air glow whatsoever on the second night when we were deep in, in, in the Sierra. The third night when we were above the crest and now looking towards west and there was a lot of air glow on the horizon and you could clearly tell that the sky was not as dark as it was on the other side. So you don't need to sit there and make any calculations. The, the lightpollutionmap.info, it really, if you, you can zoom in on any location and it tells you what the calculated index is. How should one equip themselves for the best astrotourism experience? Okay, so if you're intent to just stargaze or go for a meteor shower, I would say arriving early before, before it's dark is the most important thing especially if it's an unfamiliar location. You want to go there. You want to settle down yourself. If you're putting out lawn chairs, you want to be able to do that in daylight so you know what your surroundings are. So you're not stumbling around, especially if you go to a location. It's a meteor shower. It's a popular location. Then there's others there. You don't want to drive in with your light blazing as everyone's enjoying the shower. Everyone has phone lights now. But unless you can turn your light, your phone light into a red setting for night, Anytime you look at your phone or you turn on its light, you're going to ruin your night vision. So you really want to have, for example, a headlamp that goes red light only because red light doesn't ruin your night vision. It doesn't ruin other people's night vision. And so if you're walking around in the dark, you want to be able to see where you're going, but you also want to be able to see the stars and not have to wait the 15, 20, 30 minutes for your eyes to get dark adapted again. I want to also go over, because this is important to me, I, I was amazed a few years back when there was a solar eclipse and there was a clip on TV of Donald Trump looking up at right at the eclipse and I'm going he's going to he's going to go blind what the heck is he doing so how should people really look at it at an eclipse so there's a direct and an indirect way first of all never ever point your camera towards the sun whether it's eclipsed or not what you need is a solar filter in front of your camera lens or if you have a telescope you need to tell a solar filter which basically blocks out 99.999% of sunlight coming in. But what that also does is it absorbs that sunlight. So your camera is going to get very hot very fast. So what you don't want to do is point your camera at the sun, eclipsed or not, and leave it there for several minutes to hours because you're going to ruin your camera. As far as your eyes are concerned, again, brief looks, but with eclipse glasses. So these are, you can buy them a dollar a piece probably cheaper if you buy them bulk, but you do need eclipse glasses, which again, block out most of the sunlight. And so you can safely look at the, at the eclipse. Uh, and, and as I mentioned in my article, you want to buy these early. They ran out for the 2017 eclipse. So we have two eclipses coming up in 23, 24. And I would just suggest going on your favorite online store and, and ordering a pack of eclipse glasses for yourself. One of the things I want to talk about, and you mentioned it earlier, that you got started with a telescope as a kid, and I see all kinds of different backyard telescopes. What should people consider when they're buying a telescope? I think the primary consideration is that don't you shouldn't be disappointed because with telescope, it's really, you get what you pay for. Do some research. For example, if you buy an eight-inch telescope, and that's a substantial investment if you want to a telescope that automatically points itself, we're talking in the over a $1,000 range, you're going to be able to see the rings of Saturn. You're going to be able to see the clouds of Jupiter. You're going to see the Galilean moons of Jupiter, but not much else. When I set up my telescope for, for my students, when we go on field trips, they look through it. And the first thing they say is, why is everything black and white? That's because that telescope is gathering so little light 
that our eyes can't see the color in it. And so in, in, if you want to look your, through your telescope and start seeing those colors, then you have to connect it to a computer and have the telescope continuously take images using a CCD and integrating them to get those colors out. And of course, the longer you point a telescope at an object, the longer you absorb light. So if you want to just point a telescope and look through the eyepiece and look at objects, most deep sky objects are going to be rather faint and they're going to be, again, you're not going to be distinguishing color in them. And then if you want to step that up more to get a bigger telescope and get a CCD connected to the eyepiece where it actually downloads photographs one after the other, integrates them into a picture on the screen, that's how you would be able to see deep sky objects. Because even with my camera, if I'm, I'm, I'm not into deep sky photography, but if I wanted to do that, you look online and people are taking 500 images just to bring out some of the detail of the Andromeda galaxy. So that's a lot of work. It's not just looking through an eyepiece and seeing something. Have you ever caught the Starship Enterprise? <laughs> I wish I could. There's people who chase the International Space Station because there's apps that can tell you when it's overhead. Photographing it against the moon or against the sun is very difficult, but it has been done. You need an extremely fast camera because it takes a fraction of a second for the ISS to go across the face of the sun or the moon. So that's the closest you can come to the Starship Enterprise nowadays, I think. <laughs> And I'm assuming, because you probably would have written about it, that you have not seen a UFO. No, <laughs> I have not. We have this discussion in my astronomy classes, and even though we all agree that it is incredibly improbable that life does not exist anywhere else in the universe, we don't think they're jumping on spaceships to come to Earth just to abduct humans and do experiments on them. I keep doing the close encounters thing up to the sky and going, come, talk to me, right. I'm friendly. <laughs> And they, ne they never contact me. So let's turn to your photography skills. And if you want to take photos of the night sky, what are the key elements to have? What equipment should you have? What kind of settings? So the most important thing is a very sturdy tripod. You're going to be taking long exposures. And yeah, my, my iPhone did a semi-decent job of resolving the Milky Way this weekend. But if you want to, to get real structure... If you want to be able to see the, the, ne the nebulosity in the Milky Way, what you want is a sturdy tripod and a camera that can do long exposures where you can change the settings so you can manually change all the settings. Nowadays, usually what's done is instead of leaving the camera open for a very long exposure, you take a whole bunch of short exposures and add them together, stack them together. There's software out there, very inexpensive to zero cost that you can take 20 images and stack them together into a single image that will then give you all of the detail that you want. What you want to do is, unless you have a tracker, which tracks the motion of the earth, so it compensates for the motion of the earth, you want to take short exposures. And usually the number of seconds you can leave your camera open is 500 divided by the, the focal length of your lens. So I usually don't expose for more than 25 seconds. I do have a tracker, but it's too heavy to carry on a backpacking trip. So on a backpacking trip, I usually take 20 or 30 pictures of the Milky Way and stack them together when I come home. You want to go as wide as possible on your lens. So if you have an f2.8 lens or even a faster lens, it really helps. And then composing the images is, is, is really important. Almost every SLR camera can now resolve the Milky Way. So if you want to actually do photography rather than, oh, here's the Milky Way, then you want to make the image interesting. You want to 
the Milky Way, not just to be, oh, here's the Milky Way, but an element of the overall picture, which is what I try to go for. You also mentioned a word, nebulosity. What is nebulosity? So the word nebula comes from a Greek origin, which means cloud. So think nebulous. So when you look at the Milky Way with the naked eye, what you're seeing are these faint structures. But when you resolve it with a telescope or with a long exposure, you start seeing the pink clouds of hydrogen gas. Now, hydrogen is the most prevalent element in the universe. 75% of the universe is hydrogen. And when hydrogen is warm enough, which means 100 degrees Kelvin or negative 170 Celsius, it starts emitting light in the pinkish red part of the visible light range. It's called hydrogen alpha. But hydrogen alpha is this pink glow. So anytime you see a picture of anything in deep space, which looks pink, what you're seeing is the glow of hydrogen. And so there's several clouds, hydrogen cloud, prominent hydrogen clouds within the, the core of the Milky Way that can be seen and just outside of it that you can resolve if you have a long enough exposure and a sensitive enough camera for it. Now I have to go back and get my camera out and see what I can do with it. Yeah, I've actually taken one of my cameras and I've removed the filters inside so it actually sees more of the hydrogen alpha than a normal camera does. So that's another thing you can do is convert your camera specifically for astrophotography. Are, are there any cameras that exist specifically for astrophotography? Yes, there are. They, so so both Canon and Nikon, I know the Canon designation is an A at the end. I'm not sure what the Nikon designation is, but you can actually buy one that has a full spectrum or specific to astrophotography. Now, you can get that off the shelf. What kind of price range are they? They're usually the same price as, as normal SLRs. Converting an SLR to astrophotography costs in the 200 to $300 range, depending on what you want to do with it. So I just had one of mine converted when I bought a new camera. My old one went straight to the to the conversion, which is bad because now I have to carry both of them when I go backpacking and they're heavy. But it, it's a pretty good fix. And, and what it does is it, it really brings out the colors in what you're photographing. Anytime something is glowing pink with hydrogen, which is most things in, in the night sky, you're going to be able to capture that. So now you take your son on these backpacking trips. Can he hold one of the cameras? Yeah, he usually does well in carrying his own weight. Sometimes I'll even give him all the food to carry. But but I've gotten everything else in my pack down to as light as possible so that I can carry camera gear. My sleeping bag is extremely lightweight. Everything else I take take with me is extremely lightweight just so I can carry the cameras. It's always it's never about being this trend of being ultra light and traveling as light as possible because everything I'm doing is counterbalanced, but how much more stuff can I take with me? So wait, how old is your son? My son is 19. Well, he, he don't give him the food to carry. Yeah. He'll eat it all. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can carry the stove. Good deal. If people want to try astrotourism, I know they can go off on their own. Are there companies that actually put together mm -hmm. astrotourism tours? Yeah, for specifically for eclipses, there are, and and there's lots of companies that do that. I've never used one. The ones in the U.S. next year are obviously going to be more accessible. But for example, here in L.A., the Griffith Observatory Foundation is putting together trips for the April 8th eclipse. And so your local observatory might be doing that. Aside from that, just Google astrotourism trips or, or eclipse trips, for example. I mean, if I had more time, and I know it's going to be incredibly crowded, but the April 8th eclipse goes straight through Niagara Falls. And that's that would be a spectacular place to be. But as I mentioned in my article, the entire path of the April 8th, 2024 eclipse has a 60% chance of being cloudy. I mentioned this to one of my photographer friends and he said, well, you know what? I'm going to Mazatlan in Mexico and there it's only 28% chance. So you could travel all the way to where you're going and have cloudy skies. 
that's always a, a danger. But there's also for the for the eclipses that aren't over the U.S. and we're not going to have one for decades now after these. There's cruises to the middle of the ocean, aircraft flights that go into the path of totality. So there's various ways of getting to the path of totality and being able to observe them. I, I did find one company online that was an Italian company, and unfortunately, everything was in Italian, so I couldn't tell what, what they were talking about. I think they <laughs> right. were basically dark sky sites in Italy to go to, not around the world, So, which I think would be a great way to do things and just bring a pizza with you. Right. In, here in, here in uh, the U.S., for example, in Nevada, there's a train. And I can't remember what it's called, but it, it is a dark sky train, essentially. You book a, a, a train ride at night, and it takes you into the middle of the desert, and you can stargaze. So there are specific things like that that you can do in the U.S., even in the absence of eclipses. Vahe, are there any questions that I haven't asked you that you would like to answer? No, I think I think you were pretty thorough. I think one thing to keep in mind is, is that you can't just show up somewhere and expect to see something. You have to do some research. Whether it's a meteor shower, what's the optimum time? And one of the things, for example, if the moon is out, don't waste your time going and trying to look for meteors. Because the moon washes out a lot of stars. It washes out the faintest meteors. If you look at the list of meteor showers for the following year and day, they're all on the same dates every year. Just look up a calendar of the moon face. And if the moon is visible at night when that shower is going on, then skip that. Because they're going to come back next year. So, for example, this year the Perseid showers in August are going to be really great because they're during new moon. A couple of other meteor showers are not going to be good because the moon's going to be visible. Have they ever figured out why meteor showers come at the same time each year? So the way a meteor shower works is it's Earth going through the debris left behind by a comet. So this is like driving my car down the highway on Sunday, and we went through a cloud of insects. And all of a sudden, you start getting your windshield splattered, right? The cloud of insects is sitting there. It's not moving at 70 miles an hour. You're the one going through them. So Earth is going around the sun at 108,000 kilometers per hour. So the comets come, it's it's left its cometary tail debris and everything else, small pea-sized rocks, and Earth is sweeping those up as it goes through. And so each of the meteor showers is actually associated with a specific comet, Temple 1, Halley's Comet. Each one of these has left behind a trail of dust that we, we go through every year. Can you tell people where they can see your pictures and learn more about you and read your articles and all that? Yeah. So so the one place that I've, I've tried to put everything together, both photography and my articles, is my own website, which is vahep.com. So my name, Vahe, with a P for Perumian. Dot com. And so that's where they could go. There's categories there. They'll see my books about the Eastern Sierra and about my homeland, Armenia. These are photography bo- books with essays, my articles in the conversation, and also my photography. Terrific. I thank you so much for your time and being here and sharing your knowledge. And it's a little too early, but I got to get ready to go outside, look up at the sky. This is why I moved to a small town so I could see more in the sky. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. My thanks to Vahe Perumian for being on Life Slices and sharing his expertise. The lack of easy night sky viewing is yet another negative consequence of humankind's technical progress. But thankfully, we can check the internet for close dark skies, hop in the car, travel a couple of hours, and find great vantage points for what our ancestors merely had to look up for.
If you liked this program, please like Life Slices on social media and subscribe wherever you find fine podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesley and Studios. Mm-hmm.